we have this topic regarding uh, Jesus, the Melchizedekian high priest. It's a point that this author has been making throughout chapter 7. And uh, here we are now in kind of the third portion of the flow of this argumentation. Uh, What the author has been doing is he's been connecting the priestly work of Jesus Christ, not to the Levitical priesthood that came through the bloodline of Aaron, uh, but rather to the priesthood of Melchizedek, this figure who appeared just for a few verses uh, on the scene in Genesis. And uh, what the author wants you and I to know and to be convinced freshly of is the truth that if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in Him as your righteousness before God who pleads on your behalf, then Jesus is your king priest. He's your very own king priest, individually and personally. Right? Certainly we know He's the head of the church, but here He's the priesthood of each believer. Individually, He is the priest. And Jesus, when He came, addressed every problem and every weakness there was with the Levitical priesthood. And so this author is beginning to show you, here are some of the problems with the Levitical priesthood. Here are some of the shortcomings. Here are some of the weaknesses of the old order, the old, old system. Now here is how Jesus comes along and trumps all of those things. He addresses every single lack in the Levitical priesthood by saving his people to the uttermost. Now as you remember, the job of a priest was very simple. A priest would... Uh, sacrifice. He'd make atonement there for the people, and then a priest would intercede on behalf of the people. And so the priest served as the go-between, between a sinner and a righteous God. He was the one that would bring them together. And so the net effect of this passage to consider Jesus as your priest, as the divine priest, is to stir your love for Christ. That's what should be happening every week as we go through Hebrews. You should be done at the end of an exposition and think, I love Jesus more than I did last week or yesterday because I'm hearing freshly what he's done for me. And as you hear that and as you love him, the response is that you would draw near to him. You would actually seek him with greater eagerness because as you begin to see how willing he is as a savior and how kind and and how much he desires you to come into his presence, that you would actually act on that in faith. Each week as you hear these messages in Hebrews, You should find that the doubts and fears that you have as to whether or not God will actually save you or whether or not maybe your sin would prevent you from being saved, those fears are to be assuaged and become less and less and less the more you consider the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And finally, if you're here and you're hard-hearted, then each week as you hear these messages, what should be happening is the removal of any vain imagination that you could ever please God on your own. Any vestige of a false hope that somehow God would accept you on the basis of who you are and what you've done should just be getting totally eradicated as you hear about the priestly work of Jesus Christ. Well, just to review briefly so that you remember where we're at in chapter 7, I don't know about you, but it takes about a, a day or two for me to kind of forget everything that we've talked about on Sunday. And then by the time I get to the next week, it's completely gone. And so it's good to be refreshed and reminded if you're anything like me. Chapter 7, the first 10 verses, the author really demonstrates that Jesus is in fact this priest who came from the order of Melchizedek. And he's making the point that Jesus is a better priest than Aaron because 
Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and Abraham was the great-grandfather to Aaron, and so Abraham was less than Melchizedek, and Jesus is like Melchizedek, and therefore Jesus is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. So he's kind of arguing there in a a logical case regarding the bloodlines uh, that Jesus, in fact, comes superior to the Levitical priesthood. The one command in that whole section was verse 4, see how great this man was. So how do you obey verses 1 through 10? You just behold the greatness of Jesus Christ who came after the order of Melchizedek. That was the whole command in that section in those first 10 verses. Soak it in. Meditate upon it. Remember it beyond Sunday. Think about it on Monday and on Tuesday and every day as you wake up. And then in verse 11 through 19, the author begins to really compare these two priesthoods. And he shows us that, as we saw last week, Jesus gives you unhindered and permanent access to God that a Levite priest never could give you. He gives you unhindered and permanent access to God. There's nothing that could ever threaten that access to God. It's absolutely secure access. Your own sin can't prevent you. Your own unbelief can't prevent you. Your backsliding can't prevent you. And there's nothing that would ever lack in God that could ever threaten that access you have to him. Well, this week, the author is essentially taking that point and launching on it and saying, why is it that that's true? Why is it that you can be so confident? Why can you be so sure? Why can you, why can you just assume that the access that you have to God through Jesus Christ could never be threatened in any way? And that's what he's going to begin to demonstrate and give reasons for today. Our outline this morning is, um, that's not the right one. So the one that I put in the computer. Here it is. Jesus, we're going to get rid of that one. Jesus gives you better access to God. That's the, the heading there for the outline. Jesus gives you better access to God. And he does this because of his promise, secured by a better promise, verses 20 through 22, His permanence, the fact that he is eternal, verses 23 through 25, and then his perfections, verses 26 through 28. This is a marvelous um, description of specifically what it is that makes the priesthood of Jesus superior to the Levitical order. So what do you think about as you hear this message today? Well, for weak worshipers like you and me, This is to give you great confidence and a sense of security. It's to help you have a sense of spiritual well-being that all is well with your soul if you are trusting in Christ. See, the reason why the Aaronic priesthood existed initially was so that we would know what a priest is. So we know what it is that a priest does. Um, Aaron set the model. Aaron gave us a pattern. He gave us an established way of thinking about all that was required to come to God and be acceptable, right? And in the Levitical priesthood, it was step after step after step after step after step as a reminder of all that it would take to actually ever be acceptable in the eyes of God. Yet even in that, you you had acceptability for a day on the Day of Atonement, or you had acceptability at the moment that you offered a sacrifice. It wasn't lasting as, as soon as you you left and and right, I've, I've shared before, I've, I've been very confident that, that on the Day of Atonement, I would sin leaving Jerusalem. I would, I would get angry with the kids, or I would say something snarkier. I'd be ungrateful about the rock in my sandal. Something would happen on the Day of Atonement 
and leaving Jerusalem that very day, I'm sinning. And now that, that sweet communion and fellowship, that sense of well-being and cleansing is gone. I need to be cleansed again already the same day. And so this ministry of Jesus comes and it is totally superior. This is totally superior to anything that the Levitical priesthood could ever offer. I'm going to read to you about this priesthood and we'll begin back up in verse 17 and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. For it is witnessed of him, that is Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. My friends, Jesus gives you better access to God, first of all, because of his promise. His promise. When you think about your, your position, your standing before God, know that you know theologically it's, it's grounded in the work that Christ has done, but experientially, on a daily basis, very often we begin to think about our standing with God based upon what? Our performance. Our assessment of how we're doing spiritually that week. Perhaps our emotions, how near we feel or don't feel to the Lord. We have some way of, of assessing our, our standing. We'll talk about maybe a, a dry season. We'll talk about um, feeling the presence of God or being distant from the Lord. We'll talk about being excited about our faith or not excited about our faith. We'll talk about walking closely with God or not walking closely with God. And, and some of those statements have a basis in reality where it's important to good, ask good questions and diagnose what's going on. But none of those define how you ultimately relate to God. That's not the standing for your relationship with God. It's not the basis for your relationship with God. And so when you begin to think about the basis for your relationship with God, it is based upon God's promise. It's based upon God's promise. Right here, verse 20, it was not without an oath. So what is it that is not without an oath? Well, this better access. Verses uh, 20 and, uh, 20, or 18 and 19 talk about this better hope that we have, which is, is not a better hope qualitatively, but rather it's hoping in something better, and that which we're hoping in is free access to God. And so the author now is saying that, that this 
access did not come to you without an oath. It's a little confusingly. It came with an oath, but he's saying it did not come without an oath. And the, the focal point here is actually an oath. It's repeated three times. Not without an oath, verse 20, uh, made such without an oath, and then made a priest with an oath. So oath, oath, oath. That's clear language that you're to understand here, an emphasis on God swearing an oath. He's saying the former priests, the Levitical priests, were made such without an oath. What does that mean? Well, when God came and he established uh, the priesthood with Moses and Aaron and said, Moses, your brother Aaron is going to be a priest after me and his descendants, he never said, and I swear that's going to endure forever. He just put it in place. And so it was God who put it in place, but it was temporary. It always had a time stamp. It always had a a duration where at some point it was going to give way to something else. There was a temporary nature to it. But Jesus, on the other hand, verse 21, was made a priest with an oath. So when he was made a priest, there was this swearing in that took place. There was legal promissory language. The oath was sworn by God himself. And the quote there is, Uh, Really, the author's favorite quote that we keep seeing over and over and over from Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn, there's the oath, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So what he's saying is that that by design, when God put in place the the Levitical priesthood, he never said, I promise you that this is going to endure forever. I mean, Israel loved the priesthood. They wanted it to endure. But as you saw in Hebrews, they've they've had it for 1,500 years. It's become very comfortable to become the way that we've worshipped and our fathers have worshipped and our forefathers before them. But God never said it'll last forever. Jesus, on the other hand, when he came into the position as priest, God said, I swear, this is going to be a priest forever. He's going to be the last one. There's never going to need to be a replacement. There will never be another one. When Jesus came and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, I'm the priest I'm the priest forever. And so, the Levitical priests, they have no oath. Jesus, the priest, he has an oath. And we looked at back in chapter 6, when God swears an oath, it's not because he's not trustworthy. It's like the, the little kid that all of a sudden interjects a promise and doesn't normally do it. And it's like, that's very curious that you would have to, to reassure us that in fact you're not lying. I didn't say you're lying. Why'd you have to say I'm telling the truth? When, when God swears, it's not because he's not trustworthy, it's for our comfort, it's for our well-being. They're understanding that, that God is, is saying something, he's always trustworthy, but he's actually saying, I'm swearing on my own name and my own reputation, so that emblazoned, that it's absolutely unchangeable, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to appoint Jesus, and I'm going to give him to you as a priest. It's a legal promise. When God set this up, it was to set up a covenant, verse 22. This oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What is this better covenant? Well, this is the new way of relating to God. And so this new relationship is found in Christ. In fact, the last word of this sentence in the original is Jesus, and it takes those whole two verses And it's a way of kind of emphasizing an exclamation point on the end, that now we relate to God through Jesus. He's the the guarantor of of a better covenant. 
Now, you begin to think about this oath then. The idea really here is almost that Jesus comes in as the co-signer, okay? Co-signer. I remember the first time I learned about what it meant to be a co-signer. Mom and dad were super generous. They gave me a car when I turned 16. It was an old beater, but it was a car. It was paid for. And um, it took me two weeks to um, get in a wreck with that car. And, uh, right, those those unfair car insurance people, right? I can't believe the rates they want to charge me as a 16-year-old. No, they, they know what they're doing. So two weeks in, I wreck the car. I get a legitimate job. I need a car. I just started the job, so I don't have the money to buy the car. So I have to go find a car now to buy because I wrecked the one that was so generously given to me. And I go to buy a car, and believe it or not, they don't want to lend money to a 16-year-old without a co-signer, right? And so I got introduced to the concept of co-signing because I found not only do I need a car and the money to buy a car, but I even need a co-signer to come alongside and do what? To say, even if he isn't good for it, we'll pay. Now, when Jesus comes on as the the co-signer here, the guarantor of the covenant, it's not as if the father is somehow going to fail in producing the covenant. But it's the idea here that you have God the Father swearing an oath, and then the oath was, anyone who trusts in my son is going to get salvation because Jesus came and brought about the new covenant. He's like the guarantee. He's like the co-signer. In fact, this word could be surety. We sang about that two weeks ago. We said, uh, before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. We're saying, that's my deposit. Uh, That's my guarantee. Uh, That's the one who's going to make sure that that what I'm singing about, my forgiveness, is actually going to be true. It's not me that's going to guarantee that. Rather, it is Christ. Surety is used in business documents for the deposit. It It was the one that would carry through on the obligation. It was the one that would make good on the business deal. Think about it in Scripture. This has a great imagery in the Old Testament. Right, Proverbs 6 says, uh, My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor and given a pledge for a stranger, Psalm's beginning to instruct his sons about how to think through being careful about when you're the, the co-signer, rightly so. Proverbs 20 talks about holding a man's garment as a pledge or a security. Uh, kind of the idea, you know, sometimes you go somewhere and they say, Hey, I want to take your ID as you go in, or I want to take something valuable as you go in to make sure that you don't mess with our stuff, and then on the way out, if you didn't break anything, we'll give it to you back, right? That's the idea of surety. You want to think about, uh, in the Old Testament, probably the most beautiful picture of this was, was when the brothers um, were going back to Egypt to get food, and uh, Joseph is there, and he sees his brothers, and his brothers don't know yet that it's him. And they're getting ready to leave, and they have to bring back Benjamin. And you have the brothers saying, I will come and I will be surety. Judah is saying, listen, send the boy with me, and I will be a pledge of his safety. In other words, my life for his. I will be the guarantee. I will be the surety. And so when you think about what we get in the gospel, God has promised to accept you and forgive your sin on the merits of what Jesus has done if you simply trust him to do it. That forgiveness is secured not by your own faithfulness. 
It's secured by Jesus. He's the guarantee. He's the surety of that covenant with God. I mean, what a remarkable way of thinking about our salvation. You're not the the one who guarantees it. It's Jesus Christ. He's given himself as a pledge for you. And the author says that this is for a better covenant. Now, this is not because the old covenant was a bad covenant. God designed that covenant. It was a good covenant. The problem was it was a weak covenant. Right? It it provided a, a degree of atonement, a degree of forgiveness, a degree of drawing people near. It was always temporary. It was always limited. And so this better covenant now comes, and this atonement is a thorough atonement. This is a once-for-all atonement. Uh, This is the the power of regeneration and a new heart and the sealing of the Spirit and all of the promises that you receive in Jesus Christ. It is a better covenant. So one author put the Mosaic covenant was a very good covenant. It was a God-given, God-ordained covenant that served its purpose for the time it was meant to be in effect. It served a very good purpose for it helped to restrain sin and promote godliness. It also pointed toward the Messiah and helped prepare the way for him. And until Jesus came, the Mosaic covenant was exactly the covenant that Israel was supposed to have. The new covenant is better, though, because the old covenant was incomplete. The old was good. The new is better. You know, one of the most important things to take away here is the understanding that in this plan of salvation, it is God's plan. It originated with God. He decreed it, and then He's the one who secures it. So when we say salvation is of the Lord, this is what we're talking about. Jesus, the guarantee. And suddenly the word comes to mind as we're singing on Christ's solid rock I stand. We're singing His oath. There's the promise. His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. My friends, this is connected to that better hope. It's right out of Hebrews 7. What you're hoping in is is that God has secured something for you that you could never do for yourself, and it's never threatened because it's guaranteed by Jesus himself. Think about when you make a purchase, you're oftentimes looking for that. Is there a 100% money back guarantee? There's some kind of guarantee here where I'm protected and I'm safe. When you trust in Christ, there is a 100% guarantee. And you never have to worry about money back because it could never fail. And so Jesus gives you better access to God because of his promise, his oath, and his guarantee. Secondly, Jesus gives you better access to God because of his permanence. Because of his permanence. Now, oftentimes when we think about uh, what God did for us in sending Jesus Christ, we focus on the cross And that's certainly where atonement was accomplished in his death. But Jesus is not still in the grave. He's not still nailed to a cross. He rose again, right? He lives again. And so uh, it's not just his death, but also his life after his death that is important in understanding our salvation. And so we see now this uh, comparison in how Jesus is superior based on the fact that he never, ever dies. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's so funny to me the way that's phrased, just kind of uh, very uh, kind of casually stated there. We had to have a lot of priests Um, Overall, it was a good priesthood. There was just this one little thing that kept hanging him up. They kept dying. But other than that, 
They, they could have just kept going. They could have kept serving. Just that pesky little issue of death. See, death was baked in from the very beginning into the priesthood. In fact, the Lord wanted this lesson burned in the minds of the Israelites from the very beginning. Okay, so the Lord sets up the priesthood. Right? If you're a Jew at that time, you would have been rejoicing because God has given you a priesthood. Suddenly you have access to God. You have a mediator. You have a plan. You have a way of making atonement. And then in Numbers 20, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people. What does that mean? Let let Aaron come and sit with the folks? No, gathered to his people means get him out in the graveyard. Let him be gathered to the people who've all fallen. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Listen to this instruction and just, just begin to get it in your mind's eye. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, Moses, and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up the Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. So, so all of God's people are watching this unfold. We're going to call everyone together. Israel, come and look. We're going to take the old man, Aaron. We're going to take his son. We're going to go up on the, the mountain and we're going to take all of Aaron's priestly clothes off. We're going to put them on his son. The text says, Moses stripped Aaron of his garments. He put them on Eliezer. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. You get the Aaronic priesthood. You're thrilled to have a high priest. And then God wants everybody visually aware this is temporary. Guy's going to die. His, his priestly garments there, the robe, the 12 tribes, all the regalia, it's going to get passed on to someone else. And I don't want to do this in a back alley somewhere and just kind of have him slip off the radar. I actually want pomp and circumstance. I want everybody gathering so everybody sees it. I want everybody to feel it. That three guys go up on the mountain and only two guys come back. And the one who went up is a priest, never returned, and now there's a new high priest, a new guy going in on the Day of Atonement. And so for 30 days, the congregation wept. Eliezer didn't fare much better, no surprise there. Joshua 24, 33, then Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So Aaron dies, it goes to Eliezer, Eliezer dies, it goes to Phineas, and so on, and so on, and so on. The priest dies, he's replaced by his son, then what happens? And the grandson takes his place. Then what happens? Well, the cycle just keeps continuing on and on and on. It's like round and round the mulberry bush. You see why the author of Hebrews said there had to be many priests. Many priests because they keep dying. Jewish historian Josephus 
counted 83 high priests from Aaron until his day in the second temple in AD 70. 83 high priests. But in contrast to those dying priests, Jesus, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's never threatened in the same way. See, he gets to keep his position permanently because of the simple fact that he never dies. He's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And as he reigns, he's also going to serve as priest forever and ever. And friends, he possesses an indestructible life. There's nothing that could ever threaten his life. You could never experience the disappointment of your favorite priest kicking the can. One commentator put it this way, speaking of the Levitical priesthood and a priest dying, people might feel that because of a certain personal qualities which that priest possessed over and above others, the late priest was a less effective intercessor than his successor, or excuse me, a more effective intercessor with God than his successor could ever be. In other words, he's saying there's probably a sense of disappointment when Eliezer comes down and you're thinking, Oh, man, remember when Eliezer got his driver's license? Things didn't go very well. Now he's our high priest on the Day of Atonement. We really miss Aaron. And as much as I'm sure that was true, that there was an emotional connection that was lost with the priest whom you loved, I don't think that's the author's main point. I don't think it's emotion at all. I think the point is that dying priests were just one more reminder of the weakness of the old order that were to cause you to long for an effective and a permanent priesthood. Permanence indicates endurance, and not only that, it indicates something that could never change and never be altered and never be threatened. My friends, the priesthood of Jesus is fixed because it is permanent. And so he is now the ever-living, ever-reigning king-priest because he's eternal, because he's the Son of God, And as a result, verse 25, consequently, because he has an indestructible life and he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a wonderful truth. Consequently, he is able, that means he has all of the power needed to save, to rescue, to deliver and help. To the uttermost, that's finally and forever. Those, all those, any of those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. My friend, sacrifices can produce temporary covering for sin, but they cannot produce ultimate salvation. The old order could never remove sin in this way. And so Jesus' priesthood is unlimited in scope because he's the divine son. And you remember thinking, how is it that, that one guy on a cross in three hours could actually take away eternal punishment and damnation for millions of people? Obviously, he was not just a man, he was a divine man. And so when he saves, he is able to save absolutely with a power that has no end. He saves eternally to the uttermost. How did he do it? Well, it was by his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his perfect life that was indestructible. 
And so the question is, do you see yourself in need of this salvation? And do you see Jesus as freely giving it to you? Do you see yourself in need of this salvation and do you see Jesus as freely giving it to you? I was traveling this week and I was talking with a woman about the state of her soul and she gave assent to the fact that I'm confident, sure, I will meet God someday. I understand I didn't get here on my own. I understand I was made by someone and I will meet that maker one day. Yet honestly, all this talk about eternal salvation, I kind of like my life the way it is right now and I don't want to mess it up. I'd rather just gamble and see what happens. She actually said, I think, I want to just, I'd rather just see what happens than threaten the peace that I have right now. I don't want to disrupt that. My friends, you need eternal salvation. You need someone to save your soul. You're going to meet God. I don't know when it is, but when you do, you're either prepared to meet him or you're not. And the only way you can be prepared to meet him is if you have a God who can save you to the uttermost. You begin to think about your salvation. Problem number one is you can't save yourself. You can't fix your sin problem. And problem number two is even if somehow you could save yourself, which is impossible, you could never keep yourself saved. You couldn't ultimately hang on to God. You don't possess that wherewithal. You would defect. You would shipwreck your faith. So when you think about Jesus saving you from the uttermost, you realize that there's no quantity of sin that you could commit that's too great to prevent you from his salvation. There's no severity of sin that you've committed that is so severe that Jesus could not save you or forgive you. There's no duration of sin or or level of truth that you've sinned against that God will not wash that sin away and cleanse you. He can save you to the uttermost. Not only is he willing to save you, but he is able. He's the only one who's able to save you. Right there, it's in the text. Because he lives forever, because he's God himself, he possesses the power and ability to do that. So you begin to realize that as you think about the, the salvation, Jesus is the only place you can go because he has that power, and then he's the only one that can keep you saved. That's why the doctrine is so dangerous that salvation is in any way dependent upon you, because if it's dependent upon you or your faithfulness, then you're in big trouble. What did the Apostle Paul say at the end of his life? Saying Timothy 1, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him on that day. My friends, you can trust Jesus with your eternal soul. He's willing and able to save you to the uttermost. When you think about Jesus Christ, he is the priest who atones. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 2. He makes the sacrifice for your sin. Hebrews chapter 4, we saw that Jesus is a sympathetic priest. He sympathizes. He knows what it's like to be a human. He experienced suffering on your behalf. He cares for you now as a sympathetic high priest. Here in Hebrews chapter 7, not only does he atone, not only does he sympathize but he intercedes. Text says he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Excuse me, I just read the wrong line. Uh, verse 25, the second part, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, when we say that he's living to make intercession, we're saying this is his perpetual status. This is what he's doing every day. Remember when I met Skip Hamilton for the, the first time, one of our early conversations 
You're talking about one day you were wondering, what is it that Jesus is doing right now? I know what he did, but what is he doing? And, and embarked on a study, right? And, and documented all the things that Jesus is doing right now, currently. One of the things that he's doing is he's making intercession. In fact, he ever lives for this. You to think about what this looks like. Jesus is standing there and he's, he's mediating on our behalf. Now, what do you picture when you picture Jesus interceding on your behalf? You picture him coming to the Father and the Father's a bit austere. The Father's maybe feeling a bit stingy and Jesus just has to come along and say, Father, please, 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 please forgive so-and-so. Please don't hold their sin against them this time. Please, please, please be merciful. Please be gracious. Please don't banish them. As F.F. F. Bruce puts it, it's important to, to talk about the character of our Lord's intercession that at times has been grossly misrepresented in popular Christian thought. He's not to be thought of standing ever before the Father with outstretched arms like the figures in the mosaics of the catacombs, and with strong crying and tears, pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God. Rather, he is enthroned as a priest king, asking what he will from a father who always hears and grants his request. So as you begin to think about how Jesus is standing there, Revelation says he stands as a lamb, standing as though slain. We know from Jesus uh, the account of when he appeared to Thomas, right? He still has the nail scars in his hands and in his feet and the scar in his side. And so Jesus is standing there by the Father and by his very life, he's testifying, I accomplished atonement. Once and for all, it's done. And so he's not begging a reluctant Father. The Father sent Jesus because he loved the world and he wanted to bring about a plan of salvation to the world. Rather, the idea is that Jesus is standing there, enthroned, the Lamb standing as though slain, making intercession by virtue of his atonement. He can't be anything but a priest forever. As we sang a couple of weeks ago, five wounds are pleading on our behalf. My friends, this is the perpetual testimony of Jesus Christ making intercession for you. And it'll never stop. You're going to die at some point if Jesus doesn't come back. It could be five minutes from now, 50 years from now, 80 years from now. Pretty much everybody in the room, we're going to be dead within 100 years, more than likely. But he will still be standing there, ever living, in behalf of his people as a priest, testifying to the Father that every sin has been paid for, and now all of these people can come near to you. They've been cleansed by the blood of my sacrifice. Listen, believer, every morning you wake up, every night that you retire, while you go about your duties, while you sleep, while you recreate, even while you're sinning, this is your reality. And you just suddenly realize, I need the power of a Savior like that. That even when I'm sinning, Jesus is still standing there by virtue of his indestructible life, making intercession for me. Jesus gives you better access to God because of his promise, because of his permanence, and finally because of his perfections. Look at this Savior. 
It was fitting indeed, verse 26, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The word fitting kind of feels like an understatement here, maybe. The idea is if you were to take a, a matching game, you take us and the description of who we are and all of our wretchedness and our inability, then you need to match us to the kind of priest that would be able to save us. You get the exact priest that Jesus is. A priest who's not weak. A priest who's not morally corrupt. A priest who doesn't die. A priest who actually can provide you with all of the salvation that you need. And look at this package deal. He's holy. Intrinsically holy. Set apart from sin. He's innocent, which means he's harmless. Uh, He doesn't ever wrong anyone. He couldn't wrong anyone. Unstained, he's the the lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, Absolute perfection without any type of defect. Separated from sinners, of course, doesn't mean that he did not draw near to sinners. He ate with sinners. He actually got a hard time for his association with sinners. The idea is that he's set apart in his morality from them, untainted by them. And finally, he is exalted above the heavens. Why? Because of everything else that's just mentioned. Uh, He resides in heaven above. He's above all of his creation. And you read all of that and you think, surely if there was a man who was ever in need of nothing, was it not Jesus? Look at the text. Verse 27, he has no need. He's the man who needs nothing. Nothing that you could contribute. Nothing that you could add. He has no need here, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, the priesthood, as we've studied, was always held in position by sinners. Right? And so, as a sinner, you talk about a laborious process as a priest. According to Leviticus 4, uh, before the priest could act on your behalf and help officiate the sacrifice that you needed to offer to God because of your sin, first, the priest had to go and make atonement for his own sin so that he would be prepared to now go and offer your sacrifice to God. Priests didn't ever offer those up without concern for themselves. They had to offer an uh, offering for themselves first, according to Leviticus 16, to atone uh, the priest for himself and also for his household. And then he would begin to go and offer the sacrifice for others. In fact, we learn that among the Levitical priesthoods, uh, they would, before the Day of Atonement, sometimes just spend a whole week separated from everyone else so that they would avoid defilement. They would avoid messing something up. There was no requirement in the law for offering sacrifices daily, so why did the priest here have to offer a sacrifice every single day for himself? Well, probably because every single day, the priest was a sinner. Every day that he went to work to offer sacrifice for someone else, better check myself. Better make sure that I'm right before the Lord first. The requirement was a constant reminder of the weakness and the inability 
of that sacrifice. And so when Jesus comes and he makes sacrifice, it's completely different. In fact, when he came, he gave himself as a a ransom for many and uh, he established a new covenant in his blood. And the writer here says that it was a sacrifice that was offered once for all. It's the last sacrifice that ever needs to be made. There might be a memorial sacrifice coming, but no sacrifice needed to atone for sin. The law appoints men, verse 28, in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law always had a weakness built into it. Because it was always established on human performance at some level, even for the priest. And when Jesus comes in this new order, it is a reminder that now you relate to God in covenant relationship with him based upon the work that he has done as a son who's been made perfect forever. He's a son who's been made perfect forever. That means that he's the perfect priest. It means that he perfects all the worshipers who draw near to God through him. So when you begin to think about the message that you tell yourself when you sin, the message that you tell others when you evangelize, the message is this, through Jesus Christ, you can be perfected as a worshiper. Through Jesus Christ, you can have salvation to the uttermost. You know, as I was thinking about this, this passage all week, the thing that kept coming to mind, and we addressed it a little bit last week, is that as the people of God, we would not become focused on lesser lights and shifting shadows. To realize that this message is a transcendent message that is far more important than anything temporary that you see. Any temporary message that you could have, any temporary good that you could achieve, this is the message of eternal salvation. I'm going to finish with the answer of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own but that I belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. It makes me wholeheartedly, willingly, and ready from now on to live for him. So what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm set free from all my sin and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this sacrifice that you have provided I thank you, Lord, for your willingness to give of yourself. Uh, Even thinking of uh, when the disciples were arguing about who was greater, um, who should have the position of prominence in the kingdom, uh, who was more deserving of the influence. Lord, you said to them, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for your humility in that, for your willingness to sacrifice in our behalf, uh, to take on flesh, where even now uh, you are um, a priest who is a God-man uh, for all of eternity. Uh, that was for our sakes. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to be less um, self-evaluating in terms of our standing before you and more confident in the work that you've done. We ask this, that it would be for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.